Hello and welcome to episode 94 of the UK True Crime Weekly podcast. I'm Adam. We're not far off 100 episodes now of your 73rd favourite podcast. So if any thoughts about the content of episode 100, please do let me know. Maybe I should just go through some of the negative reviews. My favourite of all time so far is someone who said, I would rather listen to cats fighting in an alley. (laughs) I like it. As you know, I usually like to cover lesser known crimes, but today, in part one of a part two story, I'm covering a story which has been covered extensively in the media, in the UK and beyond. What we're going to hear over the next two weeks is a complex story of love, jealousy, violence, suspicion and a number of criminal trials. But before we begin, a huge thank you to all my supporters on Patreon, but especially this week's new supporters. As I'm away at the moment and both parts of the story are pre-recorded, I won't be able to name-check any new supporters today, but I promise I will do so when I return. Thank you so much. Let's set some context for this story in June 1999. The UK chart was filled with my sort of music, topped by that touching tale of existential angst. Boom, boom, boom by the awesome Wenger boys. Get in. This was keeping S Club 7 from the top spot with Bring It All Back. And in the US, number one was Jennifer Lopez with If You Had My Love, Joy. In Australia, the Red Hot Chili Peppers were at the summit of the album charts with California... (laughs) Californication. In the news this month, in Australian rules football, Tony Lockett broke the record for career goals previously 1299 by Gordon Coventry and which had stood since 1937. The largest jailbreak in Brazilian history happened at the Putim Maximum Security Prison in Brazil, where 345 prisoners ran from the main gate. In the ensuing manhunt, two fugitives were killed and five innocent bystanders were accidentally jailed. (laughs) I know you shouldn't laugh, but really? Mbeki? was elected second president of a democratic South Africa. And in the UK, disgraced cabinet minister, Jonathan Aitken. We always have to say disgraced, don't we? I wonder if he feels disgraced. Anyway, he was sentenced to 18 months prison for perjury. There was also some genuinely sad news as David Such, the founder of the official monster raving loony party, was found hanged at his home in Harrow. He was just 58. What a legend. Today's story is from Swansea in southwest Wales. A wonderful place where I've spent lots of time and a truly beautiful part of the world. Ah, those youthful nights on the Mumbles Mile, followed by Cinderella's nightclub. Mind you, the time I woke up in a boat in the rain at 4.30am was less fun. But on to today's story. For a long time afterwards there was a sign on the door of the house which was headed, a message from the family, and it read as follows. As a family, we wish to express our sincere thanks to everyone for the beautiful tributes that have been laid here outside the house. Your kind words and messages have been a source of great comfort to all of us. Thank you. The floral tributes have now been removed, and it's our intention for all the teddies and gifts to be donated to the children's ward of nearby Morrison Hospital. The house was now empty. The grass was overgrown. 
the windows and doors reinforced with metal sheeting, and it was still a place where locals stood and looked, desperately trying to come to terms with the utter horror that had taken place here. Alison Lewis had her first crush on a female teacher at school, and she wondered just what was wrong with her. And from that point until her 30s, she desperately tried to resist her feelings for women, but it was becoming increasingly difficult. Her husband, Stephen, didn't know how she felt. Alison was a martial arts expert and former British karate champion, and she met her husband on a police training course. They married in the late 1980s, and she moved from her home in Pontypris to West Crossways in Pontadawi in the Swansea Valley to live and work with her husband. Alison didn't settle into married life well, and she was signed off sick from the police for 18 months after attending a suicide attempt by a man who had killed himself with exhaust fumes in his car. This traumatic episode was terribly disturbing for Alison. She and her husband wanted children, but it had not come easily to the couple, and they tried for children for nearly three years before Catherine and Rhiannon were born. Just a year later, in 1996, Alison had her first real sexual experience with another woman, and she knew from that moment onwards that she was certainly and undoubtedly gay. And her sex life with her husband dwindled to nothing at all. After leaving the police force, Alison got back into sport and started playing as a winger for a women's rugby team in Swansea. She was good. She was very good, to the extent that she was noticed by Wales representatives and after just seven matches was asked to represent her country. She went on to win a number of caps and as well as loving this sport, this activity also introduced her to the thriving gay scene in Cardiff and Swansea and Alison enjoyed spending time with this social group. Then in November 1998, a friend known as Big Ali invited Alison and some others to a tarot card reading at the home of a friend called Mandy Power, who lived in nearby Clydeac. The women all joked about finding their one true love on the turn of the card, but this evening changed everything for Alison, and within a week she was having a passionate sexual affair with Mandy Power. Mandy was fun to be around and always had been. Like Alison, she'd married at a relatively young age, having met her first boyfriend, Michael Power, after leaving school at 16. And within five years, the pair tied the knot and moved in with Mandy's mum, Doris Dawson. Doris, a widow, had suffered a brain hemorrhage decades previously and her health was failing badly. But her attitude was good and she remained very stoical about her condition and she was a popular lady, liked by all who knew her. She was delighted to receive Mandy and her new husband into her home. The children arrived soon after, with Katie joining the family in 1989, followed a couple of years later by Emily. The couple then bought a house of their own, and Mandy took a part-time job as a nurse to help with the family finances. Mandy still spent a lot of time caring for her mum, they were very close, and her mum wasn't well at all. But Mandy also enjoyed being a mum, but she wasn't getting the attention she needed from her husband. In fairness, it was difficult for him, as he was a baker which meant very early mornings and long shifts. And when he came home, he looked after the children whilst Mandy was out working. But Mandy needed attention, 
and to feel loved by her husband and she didn't. And this caused issues in the marriage. And after 10 years, her husband Michael decided that this was no longer for him and he left Mandy and the children. Mandy was utterly devastated by this and she felt just so vulnerable and alone. It was a difficult time for Mandy on a number of levels. The financial hit was massive and Mandy was unable to maintain the monthly payments on her mortgage, which meant she had to leave the family home. Along with her sick mother, they moved into a rented home in nearby Kelvin Road. But as I said just now, Mandy also needed to be loved and felt loved and needed, and so she had a number of affairs, including one with a taxi driver who dropped her off for a nursing shift. This didn't last long, nor did the one she was having with her husband's married golf partner, or the one with a much younger man, or the one with a neighbour. It was a tough time for Mandy, who although she adored her children and her mum, she needed to spend some time with other adults her own age, and she also needed a break from the house for reasons other than work. I think a number of us understand what that feels like. Women's rugby appeared to give Mandy what she needed, with a whole group of friendly people, and Mandy was soon a regular supporter at matches, enjoying the sport, but also the social scene of a bunch of like-minded people. And then came the tarot evening at her house when she met Alison. The two got along really well straight away, but though Alison wanted to take things further with Mandy, she thought that she was straight. And it wasn't until one evening in a pub when she overheard Mandy telling a friend that she had fallen head over heels for Alison, that Alison felt able to make a move. Almost immediately, their relationship became deep and intense. Although very physical, with most of their meetings involving sex, the two became incredibly close. For Alison, this felt like the real thing and she was in love with Mandy. The couple even had their own song, the Aerosmith tune, Don't Want to Miss a Thing, which was the theme from the film Armageddon. This relationship and the depth of feeling she had for Mandy gave Alison the strength to realise that the relationship with her husband Stephen wasn't what she wanted, it wasn't her future, and she needed to live her life as an openly gay woman. Alison used to tell Stephen that she was staying with Mandy to offer her support as she cared for her seriously ill mum. And meeting Mandy gave her the perspective to face the future on her terms. And she wanted to leave her husband to move in with Mandy. She even took legal advice, so she was prepared for any future custody battles for her children if she did move in with Mandy. Her husband knew that their sex life had died, but he didn't have the faintest idea that his wife was having a secret affair. He knew that she played women's rugby and spent a lot of time with that crowd, which included a large number of gay women. But except for telling his wife he did not like her new gay friends, he never questioned her sexuality and didn't even for a moment consider that Alison would cheat with a woman. And when he worked late... He was completely unaware that if Alison wasn't at Mandy's house, she would head off to gay clubs. But although Mandy cared deeply for Alison, it was different for her. Having Alison as a lover was more about receiving the attention she deeply craved, rather than living that life forever. But even this wasn't enough for Mandy, and she started looking for attention in other ways, 
such as telling people she was suffering from a form of cancer. Inventing consultation appointments and even treatment at hospitals, Mandy went as far as having friends give her a lift to the hospital and waiting for her while she pretended to be seen. Alison was suspicious and when Mandy told her the truth, she was livid and she immediately broke up with Mandy. The two hardly said a word for two long weeks, but this was torture for Alison, who desperately needed to spend time with Mandy, and despite her disappointment and anger with Mandy for her needy ways, she desperately wanted to get back with her. When they did, of course, get back together, Alison was happier than ever, and the two then started to talk seriously about moving in together. The issue for Alison was how to tell her husband. Somehow, as you can imagine, the time never quite seemed right, and she was still terrified of losing custody of the children whom she adored. On Friday, June the 25th, 1999, Stephen, still blissfully unaware of Alison's affair, invited Mandy over to join them at their house for a barbecue. Then the next morning, when he'd left for work, Alison and Mandy made love in the marital bed. Neither of them knew that in less than 24 hours, Mandy would be dead. Firefighter John Campbell later told Cardiff Crown Court that it quickly became apparent that the victims had not died in the fire. It was 4.27 in the morning when the call came to the fire department about a fire at Kelvin Road, where Mandy lived. Lead firefighter John Campbell said, When we got there, the neighbours were in the street and the kitchen of the house was well alight. I instructed breathing apparatus teams to go in and search for casualties or persons trapped. The first one came out of a casualty. I think it was one of the children. But when rescuers attempted to resuscitate the child and the other family members, they discovered the horrific injuries and a paramedic shouted, These casualties have not died in a fire. The events that took place that night are almost beyond comprehension. It wasn't just a murder scene, it was a massacre. Each member of Mandy's family was bludgeoned to death by a long pole, with the individual attacks focused on the head of each of the victims with such force that their skulls were smashed. Mandy Power had 38 separate sites of injury. She was smashed in the face whilst in her children's bedroom, and attacked again in her own bedroom, before suffering her final injuries in her mum's room. She had a cluster of injuries behind her left ear, and her skull was stoved in with a fracture. There were clear signs that she'd struggled against her attacker. Mandy's mum, Doris Dawson, who'd so bravely borne her illness, was the first to die, and she was shown no respect in her last moments alive. Her face was crushed with blows of monumental force. Her injuries were nothing short of horrific. And the assaults on the two children were no less sickening. Ten-year-old Katie suffered a massive laceration to the back of her head and the murder weapon was forcibly pushed into her brain three times. Emily sustained severe facial fractures and a severe fracture of the skull. Part of her skull was found on the bedroom floor her jaw was fractured and many teeth were knocked out. She suffered a number of blows after she died. Emily, let me remind you, was eight years old. And the pole used to kill them all 
was a toy they used to play with. After she was killed, Mandy Powers' body was defiled and the murderer stripped her naked and inserted a vibrator into her vagina. Next, the murderer tried to destroy evidence by setting the house on fire, with at least four sets of fires being set. The clear aim being to disguise the manner of the deaths, hoping that the fires would take hold, leading to the physical destruction of the house and the evidence it contained, including the four corpses of the victims. It was just a matter of hours after Mandy had been killed that detectives arrived at Alison's house to tell her the news. Inquiries had quickly informed detectives about the affair and they told Alison that they would need to speak to Stephen about it so either she should tell her husband or they would. When she told Stephen he was of course hurt and angry unable to quite believe his wife's betrayal. A devastated Alison tried to take her own life from jumping by the window of her bedroom. She was sedated and then the next day admitted to a psychiatric unit in Swansea before going to live with her parents. The marriage was over the day she told Stephen about her affair with Mandy and within a month he'd filed for divorce. That day, a 50-strong South Wales Police murder squad led by Detective Superintendent Martin Lloyd Evans was established and they started by carrying out house-to-house inquiries and making witness appeals. The next day, they widened the people they spoke to, including quizzing members of the Welsh Women's Rugby Squad. And just a couple of weeks later, police appealed on the true crime enthusiasts' much-lamented favourite programme, Crime Watch, desperately looking for leads and information. But no immediate arrest was forthcoming, Posters were placed in shops, pubs and libraries and notices were posted on the internet, although access was limited back then. Under increasing pressure for a positive result, in November, South Wales detectives took part in a brainstorming session with some of Britain's leading police officers, including the teams investigating other high-profile murders, such as television presenter Jill Dando, and also officers involved in taking to court IRA and loyalist killer gangs. As we moved into the new millennium, police stepped up the investigation still further, revealing new leads. In January 2000, police delivered leaflets to homes in Swansea to try and track down a heavily blood-stained man who was dropped off in a London-style taxi outside a newsagent's nearby at 5.35am on the morning of the murders. And then in June, as the anniversary of the murders approached, Mandy's family made a fresh appeal on TV for witnesses to come forward, with DCS Lloyd Evans again appearing on Crime Watch. An efit of a mysterious woman in black said to have called at the murder scene was released, but police suspected that Alison and her husband Stephen had been involved. Stephen had a clear motive, they believe, as detectives suspected he had first uncovered his wife's affair with Mandy much earlier than he let on. And Stephen's brother Stuart, who was the first senior officer to reach the murder scene, was arrested on suspicion of perverting the course of justice. Stuart's behaviour aroused particular suspicion. He could not account for his movements at the time of the murders, although he had been on duty. He did not write about this in his police notebook until two days later, which was highly unusual, 
and even when he did record what he had seen, parts of it seemed to have been altered. When Stuart arrived at the house, firemen and paramedics told him that the victims had not died as a result of the fire, but had been attacked. The bodies, which are outside the house, were covered in blood, and Stuart should have contacted the control room to let them know as likely there had been a number of murders so a full-scale inquiry could get underway. By not doing so, who knows what might have been missed? As we know, those initial hours are often so vital. But instead, Stuart disappeared for an hour. This meant the house was not secured properly, and valuable time for the start of forensic inquiries was lost. The force realised the seriousness of the crime only when other night duty officers who had been at the scene returned to their base at the end of their shift. Stuart faced an internal inquiry for his actions and accounted for his whereabouts after he went to Clydak, but according to the internal police report, what he said was untrue. Why would he lie? And a witness, Nicola Williams, saw a man walking from the direction of Mandy Power's house carrying a bag. Nicola Williams got a good close look at him and thought he was wearing what looked like a police jacket. She produced an e-fit which looked like Stephen Lewis. And 15 months later, she picked out the sergeant on an identity parade. But Stephen denied this and after all, he had an alibi as he was in bed with his wife Alison. But there was another explanation. The e-fit looked even more like Stephen's twin, Stuart. And Stuart couldn't account for his movements that night. And so on the 3rd of July 2000, detectives made their move. Alison Lewis was awoken early by the sound of running on her stairs. Her bedroom door flew open and there were police everywhere. They came into her bedroom and told her she was under arrest for murder. She was handcuffed and taken out onto the landing where in view of her daughter, officers put plastic bags over her hands. As well as Alison, her estranged police sergeant husband Stephen was also detained on suspicion of murder. As I said, Stephen's twin was also arrested at the same time for allegedly perverting the course of justice. The houses of the suspects, as well as the home of Alison's parents, where she spent the first few months of her separation from her husband, were sealed off. Alison's car was also taken away for tests. And at one stage, as word got around, an angry mob of over 150 people surrounded the police station where the suspects were held, just demonstrating the strength of feeling about this case in the local community. But no charges were ever brought against the three, and they were all released, as the police now had a new prime suspect. And in part two of the story next week, we will hear all about this suspect, 39-year-old former scrap metal dealer, David Morris. A violent man with a string of offences under his belt, David Morris denied murdering Mandy and her family. After all, he claimed that the pair had been having sex just a day before he was accused of killing her. We will go into much more detail on this next week. Don't miss it, it's an amazing story. Thank you for listening to this episode of the UK True Crime Weekly podcast. Please do join me next week for the conclusion of this story. But in the meantime, please join us on our Facebook group. It's great.
1,400 people, we talk about everything UK true crime related. Or to support the show and listen to 18 full-length bonus episodes with number 19 just a week away and other exclusive content, please support the show at patreon.com slash UK true crime. So until we speak again next week, I'm off to the alley looking for cats to listen to. And on that bombshell, it's cheerio for now and speak soon. <laughs>